Psalm 95. And then we'll go to page 74 in the back of the blue, and we'll read just a part of Article 12, but I wanted to uh, read that as well. We have the privilege once more of coming before the Word of God and gathering around it. We trust that this is for the saving of God's elect and for the building up of his saints. Psalm 95, God's holy and inspired word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His his care. Today, if you hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. If you would take page 74, article 12 in your blue hymnal, and what we'll read together in in unison here is uh, just that first column of article 12 where it says, we believe, and then going all the way down there to that column where it just says, may serve his God. So we'll just read that section tonight, and that'll really be all we consider uh, together, the creation of all things, especially the angels. Let us read this uh, with one voice. We believe that the Father, by the Word, that is, by His Son, has created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures, when it seemed good unto Him giving every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its creator, that he also still upholds and governs them by his eternal providence and infinite power for the service of mankind, to the end that man may serve his God. There are several things in this section, in this even this short little part of the article that we read, that uh, we might unpack and consider. So we'll do so, and we'll do so with Psalm 95 as our guide, because 
Psalm 95 highlights not only the principal doctrine that we're considering tonight, which is the creation of all things, but it also brings us to the same conclusion that the confession does. Psalm 95 concludes the same thing that the confession does, which is that God's lordship among all of the earth as the creator compels us to serve him. We see this idea of serve shows up twice there in the confession. Serve, uh, creation may serve its God, man may serve his God. And that's really where the doctrine of creation becomes practical in the life of the Christian. If God has made you, if God has made you in the way that scripture describes, it shows the many ways and the many reasons why God is to be adored and worshipped and served. Psalm 95 then has worship as this wonderful starting place. A starting place in the Christian life. And it uses that starting place as the foundational motivation for enduring in the worship-filled posture and lifestyle that the Bible commands of us. That all followers of the King are to have a, a posture of worship. To put it another way, Psalm 95 teaches us this. That to continually strive to come before our God in worship equips us with the ability for us to see how foolish it is to become hardened in our hearts and to walk away from Him. That's what worship does. To continually strive to come before God in worship. That's what we need to see. We need to see this time as a covenantal time as a spiritual time, as a spirit-filled time that God might give us eyes to see and to notice how foolish it would be to become hardened in our hearts and to spurn and scorn uh, this God and to stray from Him. Psalm 95, it's interesting you can consider Psalm 95 in the complex of all of the Psalms. It's in Book four of five, and uh, book four out of five centers around the idea of comfort in life and how comfort in life springs forth particularly from worship. Early in book four of the Psalms, back in the the 70s and 80s of of the Psalms, uh, they remind us more in a general sense about the power of God in creation and in redemption. But then later in book 4, like where we are in Psalm 95, it has this idea of worship as the natural conclusion, the only, the only place the human heart can go if all of these things are true about God and if he is this creator, this powerful creator uh, that we believe him to be. So we consider three things tonight, three ideas. The first is this, the call to worship, the confession of our worship, and the completion of of our worship call, confession, and completion. In all of these ideas, we see how important it is that we understand that God being our creator exactly in the terms that the Bible lays out for us. Why it's so important for us to understand God as the one who created all things of nothing, and that he did so through the word of God, through Jesus Christ. And that the central purpose of God's creation of this world was so that his creation might serve and honor him. As we consider that, all together we have to, you know, we have to figure in 
because of the fall, because of sin, we have to figure in redemption. But we can't lose that, that central foundational piece that we always have to hang on to. Just because God is the creator, he is to be served. He is to be worshipped. He is to be adored. He is worthy of all of those things. So first, the call to worship. Something to notice about the first six and a half verses of Psalm 95 is that there are three separate occurrences of the command, Come. It's important to know that in Hebrew, these are actually not the three, uh, the, same, the, the, the same word. These three words are not the same word, but three different words, all which have a different nuance of what it means to, to, to come to somewhere, to come to a place. The first one, which occurs in verse 1, is just the general verb of setting out to a destination. It's going out, if you're going to set out to a destination, to arrive there, you would use this word. The second which occurs in verse 2, uh, carries a more specific idea of, of meeting or confronting someone personally, face to face. So in verse 2, this makes the coming to God more specific to himself. He is the destination to which people in Psalm 95 are pressing, are coming to God. And then lastly, in verse 6, uh, there it is a verb that very specifically carries the idea of entrance into a place. Entrance into an enclosed place. So we see that with each further occurrence of this command, come, come before the Lord, come into his presence, we get a little more specific each time. The idea is sharpened a bit more and more as you progress through the psalm. What are we to make of all of this? Well, it seems that we can attach this to uh, somewhat of a vision of worshipers going into a worship service itself. In the Old Testament context, we can imagine people setting out to go to the temple in Jerusalem. They're setting out to go to that destination. In in verse 2, it's as if they're arriving into the outer courts. And in verse 6, they're about to enter the holy place of the temple. Let us come into his presence. Let us bow down uh, in worship. But all the while, there are these explicit reminders of who this God is. They're, they're, the, the psalmist is careful to make sure that we know who this God is, whom we are about to worship. So the psalm reminds us then, just in a general sense, of the importance of knowing who it is that we are worshiping and being aware of him as we come into worship, as we make our way to Worship, As one person has put it, only those who are prepared to enter the presence of the great God are prepared to worship. Who are prepared to enter the presence of, of the great God. That is, they are holding in their minds and they are aware of who this God is and they understand that this is who they are going to worship. The great God. We come prepared by reminding ourselves of who he is. The God of scripture. The God who eternally exists in three Persons. Knowledge of God is not the only thing. It's not the only part of the spiritual life, right? But knowledge of God is indispensable in the process. We might say that the worship of God is more than just knowledge. It's more than just knowledge, but it certainly is not less than knowledge. Worship of God is more than knowledge, but it is not less. I was reminded of this point uh, this past week. I came across... Um, uh, a research poll that came out regarding some fundamental questions about uh, what Americans believe about God. This research poll 
sought to ask people just a couple of basic questions. Whether or not they believed in God, and if so, whether or not they believed in God as he is described in the Bible. So, it, it, it was not surprising to me that this was the result, but the results were very confusing. They were very uh, confusing. Many people who say they did not believe in God still said they believed in a higher power or force. Many people who say they believed in God did not believe in a personal God, but only a spiritual power. So the, uh, the power or force was really kind of the, the one that, that won the day. Most confusing was that around 10% of people who described themselves as Christians said they did not believe in God as he is taught and revealed in Scripture, but only believed, once again, in a spiritual power or force. They did not even believe in a personal God, just some kind of force. Ultimately, the findings of the poll show us that whatever people are believing in, whatever it is, it's the object of their belief or they hold to be the truth, the majority of people simply do not care about the finer details of the object of their belief. It just doesn't seem to matter to them. Uh, the attributes of God, characteristics of God, what he has done um, in history, people do not seem to care. Perhaps they think it does not matter what God is like or uh, what he thinks about us or how we relate to him. How different is the posture that we see in Psalm 95? Pilgrims make their way to worship, and with each explicit reminder of who this God is, you see the energy build to finally, where they enter the temple, they bow down and they kneel before this God. The starting point, as we consider these things tonight, is that we must know the God whom we worship. We must know Him, and we must know who he is. We must know his attributes. We must know what it is that he has done. We must know what it is that he thinks of us. We must know how it is that we might be welcomed into his presence. It is all of these things that give substance to what happens in worship. It is why worship must be filled with substantive truth about the God we are worshiping. If we are not proclaiming truth, if we are not holding on to truth, then our worship is empty. Worship is more than knowledge, but it is not less. The psalm actually shows us how understanding and knowledge give, give rise to other aspects of the worship uh, within God's people. Several specific acts are named in this psalm as things that might accompany the worship of God in a context like this. Psalm 95, making their way to the temple. God's people sing. They shout, they draw near, they extol, they bow down, and they kneel. So there's all of these different things going on. So one commentator said that uh, because of this, God's people are, you know, you picture them doing all these different things. And one commentator says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord is much too tame for this song. Because there's shouting, extolling, bowing down, kneeling. What do all of these things, these actions, what do they communicate? They must be the symbol or the sign of something. These actions seem to signify things like joy, humility, praise, dependence, faith, reverence, and perhaps other virtues as well. But they all work together to show the condition of the heart of the worshiper. One shouts 
to God because he is joyful. He is overjoyed. One kneels because she is reverent. So these outward actions express the reality of faith and devotion in the heart. That's the way um, my seminary president, Robert Godfrey, puts it. They express the reality of faith and devotion in the heart. Think about what God would think if someone were doing all of these outward actions, the shouting, extolling, bowing down, kneeling, but had no spiritual vitality. We see warnings like this in Scripture. God says that if, if, some, uh, if someone is dressing up their worship with all of these outward actions, but they have no uh, vitality of the heart, he, he says things like this in Isaiah 29. These people draw near uh, with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. We can't trick God these things, can we? God knows the conditions of the heart. All of these actions are meant to portray that there's a unity of devotion to God within the, the whole person. That we are devoted to him with head and heart and hands. So it's this unity of devotion to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Most people believe that since the New Testament is rather muted with things like this, you don't see this kind of language filled the New Testament of shout, extol, uh, bow down, kneel. Uh, since the New Testament is rather muted with all of these things, they are, they are both not required in New Covenant worship and they are not forbidden either. But what we do know is that whatever, whatever way people are worshiping, It must flow from a sincere heart because doing things as mere formalism or as a theatrical show does not amount to good and proper and holy worship. And this all highlights for us the central idea of the essence of worship. The essence of worship is this, confessing the greatness of God with sincere hearts. Confessing the greatness of God with sincere hearts. This is what God wants in our worship. Sincere hearts for our mouths and whatever else we use in our worship to reflect our hearts. There are some people, uh, even within the Reformed tradition, sometimes feel such a thrill of emotion and affection in uh, the context of worship service, of a worship service, that they might raise their hands, right? That's fine. But the question is, does it reflect the attitude of your heart? Or is there something else at play? Is there something else going on with it? Some people feel uh, less comfortable doing things like that. And that is fine too. But the question is, is the condition of your heart full of love and adoration to your God? While seeking to be humble and prostrate and reverent before him. Are you full of gratitude for all that he has done for you? Is your heart sincerely filled with the worship of your great God? That is the heart of the true worshiper. That is the call to worship that we see in Psalm 95. Secondly, the confession of our worship. The condition of our heart is the essence of worship. This psalm we are called to worship God through a greater growth in learning who he is for us. But this psalm also speaks of the ground of worship, which is seen in two basic convictions, which is that God is the King and Lord above all other deities. This is not to say that other gods exist, right? For we know that God is the only one. 
but the Bible is, is situated in a world in which everyone kind of, uh, you know, outside of Israel, people have their own gods, they have their own pantheon of gods, and th- hundreds or thousands or millions of gods whom they worship. And so scripture is filled with these kinds of claims. Verse 3 in Psalm 95, the Lord is the great God, a great king above all gods, all gods. Now, of course, this is a pretty big claim that the Bible is making, particularly in the world in which it was written. But the psalm provides a proof for this claim that the God of Israel is the only true God, the one that is enthroned above all of the others. Verses 4 and 5 are the proof uh, to this claim. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Notice how the psalm sort of names opposites here in order to communicate that uh, there is nothing that God has not created. There is nothing that lies outside of his control. It's the Lord of all, the depths, the mountains, the sea, and the dry land. These two verses are really shorthand for the kinds of language that fills the psalms. The Psalms, as the hymn book of God's people, the hymn book of the worship of God, is constantly, constantly returning to this refrain that He has created and He is worthy of our worship and praise. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 148, we read. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. This is... uh, This truth is central to the Christian faith. It's central to the Christian worldview. Where do all things come from? They come from the creative hand and power of God. Where does matter come from? All of the stuff that makes up the universe, where does it come from? God created it. He created it out of nothing. It's funny that these days you might uh, mention this to people, you might dialogue with people about these things, if you ever get a chance to, uh, to talk about um, your faith or what you believe about um, where we have come from and why we're here. You might say, I believe that all things come from God, and someone will say, well, I, I just can't believe in something like that. I can't believe that, uh, that uh, a divine being like that is the source of all of the things that we see. And uh, while that kind of rejection might sound very modern and scientific, there are really only two options besides that one, right? You can't just simply skirt the question of how did everything get here and why we are here. And you, can, you can do your best to ignore it, but that question sort of hangs over, uh, over life itself, doesn't it? Really, there are three options. Either God created the world, a personal being created the world and everything that we see, Or, a second option is that nothing created the world. Nothing created the world. That's an odd one. Nothing was there. Nothing existed, and then there was something without any explanation whatsoever. Nothing created something. Most secular people today think this is how it happened. But they probably haven't thought it through very well. Because nowhere else in life, nowhere else in the universe, are are you ever, will you ever catch people thinking that they can find something intelligible and say that it came from something not intelligent. 
You can't get intelligibility from something that's not intelligent. If there was an explosion at a printing press and it, it ended up that a dictionary was formed because of that explosion, all of the letters are matched and everything in alphabetical order, A to Z, would we believe that? No, of course we wouldn't believe that. If there's, you know, uh, some kind of dust on at a junkyard and um, a 747 airplane is the result of an explosion in a junkyard, would we buy that? Well, no, of course not. So that's your second option. Nothing uh, created something. The last option would be to say that the universe has always existed. It's always been. It, it stretches into the, the eternity past. But that does not really answer the question, for it does not answer why this universe has always been. It doesn't answer the why question, does it? But to return to our point, the creation of all things by God, out of nothing, not only grounds our worship, but it gives uh, God the freedom. We don't just view it relative to ourselves. We view it relative to God. It gives God the freedom to determine how his creation is to honor him. The freedom of God. Because he is the creator of all things. Because he has spoke all things into existence. And that is the freedom that God has. And it is the ability... Uh, to properly grasp this point that gave Israel the reason for so much joy and comfort in worship. That's why it was joyful for Israel to go in to worship. For what kind of God is the God of Scripture? Well, He's powerful. He is the only God. He has created all things. But what kind of a God is He? He's a loving God. Is He a vicious slave driver? No. Verse 7 describes him as a loving shepherd who cares for his flock. A shepherd. A shepherd of his people. It was this truth that shaped the joy of Israelite worship. They began, they began with this conviction, this foundational conviction. Their God had created all things. All things have come from his hand. And that God is their shepherd. That he set his love Upon them. Israel, though a people of very little significance in the world, yet the only God who actually exists plucked them out from the world and set his love upon them, said, You are going to be mine. You are going to be my people. And that creates immense joy. And that should create, create immense joy for us, brothers and sisters, because the same is true for us that God set his love upon us. We think about, you know, how things are going in life. How, how's your life going? The answer should always be better than I deserve. Things are better than I deserve because I'm a wretched sinner. And God set his love on me, plucked me out from the world. He said, you're mine. I'm the creator of all things, but I'm also your shepherd. I'm going to become your God. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. We're always doing better than we deserve. In worship, we confess that the triune God of grace, the one who always is, the one who always will be, who always exists as the Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect fellowship and love and joy, has set his love upon us. That is the confession of our worship. The confession of our worship. And then finally, the completion of our worship. This psalm 
turns to a, a very shocking place almost. There's this worship of God and then there's this warning. This warning at the end of the psalm. And so it's been said that uh, this point of the psalm is a bit shocking. But if we consider uh, the confession's language, uh, our confession, the Belgic confession, we see that this turn in the psalm is exactly the kind of thing that we need to hear at this point. Because even though God created us to serve him, as the confession says, we know that we do not serve him. We know that we do not serve him as we ought. Like Israel, we are a people whose hearts tend to go astray, who tend to desire the evil things that Israel did. This psalm is closely connected to that passage in 1 Corinthians that we considered last week as we gathered around the table. And there Paul says to the Corinthians, look to Israel and learn from them. Many of them came into contact with the redemptive power of God, but they did not let it bring them to full obedience. You can't play around with God. He knows your heart, and he knows when we are absent of devotion to him. Most often the true state of our hearts is revealed when things are not as we want them to be. When things are not going well, it was this way with Israel. Everyone's jumping for joy as they're making their way out of Israel, right? The the ten plagues have happened. God has shown his power. God has shown that he's not going to let the most powerful nation in the world stand in his way. Israel's walking out. Everyone's jumping for joy. But at the first sign of distress, the first sign of a challenge, they doubt God. Though he had shown himself faithful to them again and again and again. See, true worship is not completed unless it is worked out in faithful obedience and in trust of your God and your king. The key, uh, several keys to understanding this psalm, the first Corinthians, also Exodus 17 and Hebrews 4 through 6, so very important passages in understanding um, this, this psalm, Psalm 95. And Exodus 17 is where we read about the episode of Massa and Meribah. These two words mean quarreling and testing. And Moses named these places in Exodus 17 testing and quarreling because that is what the Israelites were doing. They tested the Lord. They said, is the Lord among us or not? See, they're accusing God of breaking the covenant, of straying from them. Though God had proven himself to them to be the rock of their salvation, they still doubted that he was going to keep his covenant promises. It has been thought that God is referred to as the rock of salvation in verse 1 of Psalm 95 because of the mentioning of Exodus 17 later on. As God identifies himself in Exodus 17 with a rock, with a rock. Do you guys remember that story? In Exodus 17, Moses brings the complaint of the people to the Lord. They're complaining. They're saying, is the Lord amongst us? Or not. God tells Moses to do something with the rock. He says, gather the elders of the people of Israel. Pass by all of the people. Which was God's way of saying that that a verdict has been reached. There was going to be some kind of of, uh, announcement of a legal decision that had been made. And God tells Moses, take the staff of God's judgment with which Moses struck the Nile. And go to this rock with which God identifies himself. And God says to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock. The most staggering moment in all of scripture, if you think about it. It really is, because God does not stand before men. Men stand before God. And God says to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock. 
And God tells Moses to take that rod of judgment, that rod of God's judgment, and to strike the very rock with which God identifies, which shows that even in the face of uh, God's, God's people rebelling and doubting him and testing him, that God will bear the blow of judgment on their behalf. Staggering picture of God's grace. Rather than wiping Israel out, which God would be completely and perfectly entitled to do, he would bear the strike of judgment so that Israel might be healed. And so we go to 1 Corinthians and we read that Israel drank from the rock that gave them all of that water. Water gushed forth from the rock. The Israelites were given water to drink. And Paul says, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. So you see what Paul does there. He says that we cannot test the Lord. We cannot think that we can get away with formalized or theatrical religious observation, but rather we are to look at the glory of God's grace. Look at the glory of God's grace and understand what the Son of God did for us. That he bears the blow of God's judgment so that we might be healed of all of our wretched sin and evil. And that as we look to Christ and as we look to the glory of God's grace, we will be so in awe of God's matchless love that we will give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. The cross is not a free pass to go and sin. The cross is the freedom to go and sin no more. The completion of worship happens when we grasp the wonder of God's grace in the gospel of Christ. And that wonder leads us to give ourselves in devotion, not in doubt, not in accusing God, but rather that we always say that because of Christ, we are doing better than we deserve. Since God is creator, we must serve him. Because Christ bears the blow for us, we serve our God in freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would... Hide this word in our hearts, and that you would bring forth um, the depth of its meaning, and that through it you would shape and convict and strengthen us. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. How great is the name of our God. He is matchless. He is worthy of all praise. Let's stand together, sing all the verses of number 13. Lord, our Lord, thy glorious name.